Welcome to the Calvary Podcast, Lenten Preaching Edition, a ministry of Calvary Episcopal Church, recorded live in Memphis. The Calvary Podcast is weekly sermons, but also conversations, reflections, and provocations about the mystery of God and what it means to be human in the world in need of repair. Good afternoon, everyone. What a joy to be alive today. And what a joy to be part of a 100-year tradition hosted by an extraordinary congregation in this fantastic city that is still engaged in the struggle for justice and joy and peace in this land with such rich history. Uh, and a continuing sense of being torn between fear and growth. What a moment to consider the future of faith. In this passage we just heard, it really begins with a very understated miracle where two opposing religious and political parties come together in agreement. It's it's amazing. I know it's hard for us to imagine a world where, with divided political and religious parties. But here is one of these rare moments where leaders of these two parties come together and they agree on a strategy to bring down Jesus. They want to test him. And they say, they, they, they think, here's something we can agree on. Let's ask him for a sign in the heavens, a supernatural sign that will prove who he is. And it's really quite a brilliant strategy. It's a win-win strategy, because if by chance he can produce a sign that shows he's legit, then they, they have no risk in following him. Do you understand? If you get a sign, there's no risk. Uh, but of course, they probably don't expect him to be able to produce the sign, which means he'll be discredited, and they'll both be able to go on with their previously scheduled polarization. As, you, as usual, Jesus takes this test question and refuses to play the game and instead, as he often does, turns the question inside out and upside down. He says, okay, you want a supernatural sign. Why don't we start with a natural sign? You, you want something that can reduce your risk. Let's look at something very, very natural. And he quotes to them that old proverb that still exists today. I mean, it obviously didn't exist in English then. It was in in Hebrew or Aramaic. But he says, red sky at morning, sailors take warning. Red sky at night, sailors delight. Or there's a couple of different versions of it. But Now, here's an interesting thing. This is an old saying that meteorologists say actually has some legitimacy. This was a result not of superstition, but of careful observation. Uh, Back then, they only could make a a pattern observation. Now, meteorologists can explain to us why this is the case. Red sky at night, sailors delight. Well, at night, you're looking toward the west to see the red sky. And why is the sky red? Because of fine particulate particulate matter, little dust, very fine dust in the atmosphere that is the sign of a high-pressure system. High-pressure system, 
few clouds, clear skies, fair weather. So when at night you see, and most of our weather in temperate latitudes comes from the west, you see to the west high pressure system, you know we should expect good weather. In morning, red sky at morning, when you look to the east, you see the signs of a high pressure system to your east, that weather is going away. What typically follows high pressure system? Low pressure system, which is what we had happen this morning, which usually brings some rain and wind. So Jesus says, look, you want a sign of the time. Why don't you start, instead of asking for a supernatural sign, just paying attention to what nature has already taught you and what nature is already trying to teach you. Uh, and, and he says, in fact, it's not a good sign when you're looking for a supernatural sign. Have you thought about that? You know, there's a lot of people that feel that they're actually magnifying their spirituality when they look for supernatural signs. I just got an email yesterday from somebody that was filled with all kinds of prognostications about the future based on any number of signs and interpreting signs and saying, now we know uh, this email told me that the second coming of Christ was going to happen. With, and actually, it, I looked at the email and it was already passed and they already missed their deadline. <laughs> but I think... There are all kinds of spiritual reasons why people want God to give them insider trading information to reduce risk. Because all of our brains are wired to avoid danger. Our, our brains are very oriented toward the future. When we set a topic like the future of faith, it's we're interested in the future because our brains are wired to avoid danger. And in that context, what our brains are very often looking for is hope. And for a lot of us, hope means optimism. But I'd like to suggest to you, I'd like to problematize hope for a couple of minutes for you here. Because when we want hope, here's what we do. We look for any trend lines that tell us we're going to be okay. And if we can't find trend lines and statistics, we look for anecdotes. If I can just find one positive story, I'll be able to return to my previously scheduled complacency. I just want you to tell me that everything's going to be okay because I really would like to relax. And if you tell me things are not going to be okay, it raises my anxiety level, and I don't like that how that feels in my body, and I'm going to find somebody else who will tell me that everything's going to be okay. When hope means for us optimism, when hope means for us the odds are in our favor or I can find a, uh, a few good anecdotes to make me feel better, um, it can lead us into complacency and denial. We aren't facing full reality. And so, can you see why all of us are attracted to hope? I'm a big fan of hope, but in dangerous times, hope can be dangerous if it leads us to complacency. 
The opposite is also true. You might find this strange, but I bet if you reflect upon it, you'll realize there are a lot of people who like to predict the end of the world. If you look through history, it's common in religion, it's common in politics. We, there's something in our brains that would like, we'd prefer hope, but if we can't have hope, give us a big dose of despair. Because when we have despair, we say, nothing I can do is going to make a difference. I guess I can return to my previously scheduled complacency. Can you understand how looking for signs very often is just a way to give me some confirmation bias that my complacency is justified, whether for hopeful or despairing reasons? In dangerous times, complacency, whether hopeful complacency or despairing complacency, is dangerous. So if we were to take Jesus' advice and to say, look, instead of looking for some preacher or saint or sage or prophet to give you the insider divine trading information, if we were to take Jesus' advice and say, what do you see? What's the weather? What do you see when you try to look at reality? I think we all would have to say, if we were to look at a hundred years from now, and wouldn't it be wonderful if there were people gathered here a hundred years from now? It's as hard for us to believe as it probably was for people to believe in 1923. But if people were gathered here now, what would we expect they would have experienced over these next 100 years? The first thing I think we all would say, if we just look at physical reality, we'd have to say their physical climate is going to change. I'm doing some writing about this now. And the thing I think that we all, more and more of us now, are facing this reality. We, have, we are involved in something called ecological overshoot. That means that we suck out too many resources from the earth faster than the earth can replenish them, and we pump out too many toxins and waste and pollutants faster than the earth can detoxify them. Any species that engages in ecological overshoot, whether it's a locust, a, a, a flock of locusts, or a, a plague of locusts, or a, a rise in the number of rats and mice, or, uh, or a rise in the number of people who suck out too many resources and pump out too many toxins, any, any species that cannot live any species that does not fit with its environment will not survive. Uh, by the way, that's what Charles Darwin meant by survival of the fittest. He did not mean survival of the most aggressive or the most competitive. Fittest meant those that fit best with their environment. And so we know if we look around today that that's the reality that we're facing. And instead of looking for hope or despair, don't you think it would be wise for us to just be awake and face reality and say, what needs to be done about this reality and what are we going to do about it? I have a dear friend named Jim Antal who wrote a book a couple of years ago called Climate Church, Climate World. 
And I'm so happy that that book is being re-released with even updated information uh, in just a month or two. And what Jim said as a lifelong pastor and minister in the United Church of Christ, what Jim said is, look, this is a once in, in a lifetime opportunity for the Christian church and other faith communities to wake up to reality and to play their part in saying, this is a reality we have to deal with. As people of faith, we have to bring all the resources at our disposal to try to help us deal with this reality. If we in our faith communities really open our eyes to this reality and we say, we've got to approach this reality with faith, I'll tell you some of the things we would do. First of all, in our religious life, we would look at every liturgy, every service, every prayer, every litany, and we would say, how can we use the resources at our disposal to help people develop a new relationship with the earth? To stop seeing the earth as just a source of resources for us to exploit and make short-term profit off of, instead of seeing it as a treasure, as God's beautiful creation, that we have a responsibility to try to pass on to our children in the best shape we possibly can so that generation after generation, there'll be a sustainable, regenerative future uh, for, for, for the future. The future of faith takes seriously the future of the earth. It would affect everything we do. It would say it's not enough for us to just keep liturgy going for another hundred years, to keep preaching going. If that liturgy and preaching and all the rest don't lead to people having deep, transforming change in the way we live with the earth. And, and can I tell you, technology plays a role, politics plays a role, economics plays a role, but in the next 100 years, faith could play an absolutely pivotal role. Let's, let's face reality. The Christian religion has played a big part in almost every mess that we're in. The Christian religion could play a big part in getting us into a better place in the future. And guess what? It's Christians who can play a role in changing the direction of the ship of the Christian faith. The next 100 years could be full of that kind of change if we will face reality. Now, we have an external environment of the geosphere, the biosphere, all that's happening in the earth. But we also have an external environment in the social and spiritual sphere. What's happening among human beings? And if we open our eyes to that reality, then we will see that we're in a kind of state of spiritual and social overshoot as well. Just as you can overshoot your physical environment, taking out more than you give back, and pumping out more waste and toxin than can be absorbed, we can do that in our social sphere. We can pump out more resentment. We can pump out more revenge. We can pump out more bitterness. We can overheat the social environment just like we can overheat the physical environment. And I'll tell you something, the physical environment is resilient, but it has limits. 
You can do things to the earth where you cross tipping points. You, I think more quickly you can do things to human societies where you cross tipping points. Pumping out lies so that trust is eroded. And when you lose trust, you lose everything. Pumping out segregation, where people segregate by race, where they segregate by political affiliation, where they segregate by social class and socioeconomic status. And when people segregate and they only speak to people who are like them, the gaps between them grow deeper. Can you see how segregation creates and in a social environment that, that breeds conditions for division and distrust. And so if we just open our eyes to reality, uh, we're going to see that complacent hope and complacent despair are equally self-sabotaging. My dear friend and colleague, uh, Father Richard Rohr, has a beautiful definition of contemplation. Here it is. Contemplation is meeting all the reality we can bear. Contemplation is meeting all the reality we can bear. All of us have a love-hate relationship with reality. And for us to learn to center ourselves and quiet ourselves and not reach for what some friends of mine call hopium <laughs> or reaching for the sedative of despair, but instead to try to meet reality, maybe with the aid of that prayer made more popular by Alcoholics Anonymous and related recovery movements, but originally coming from Reinhold Niebuhr, that serenity prayer. God, give me the serenity. Serenity to face reality and accept what we can't change and courage to change what we can. That kind of contemplative serenity is going to be necessary in the next 100 years maybe in the next one or two or five as well. Uh, it's been very touching in the last few years. Richard has been through a couple of additional health challenges and he keeps bouncing back. I can't remember if he's up to four or different, five different kinds of cancer that he's had now and he keeps bouncing back. But over the last few years, Richard says, I, I've stopped reading, I don't read much. He says, what I spend a lot of my time doing is gazing. A contemplative gazing, just watching that old cottonwood tree, just staring at that wooden chair, and considering the love and skill that went into making it, and thinking about the tree that it came from, and thinking about the role that it's played in this home, and contemplative gazing, keeping my eyes open, Meeting reality in its depth and, and not immediately reacting, I like it, I dislike it, but to just say, this is reality. Let me meet it. That can help us, I think, maybe redefine hope in a more positive direction.
I came across this quote, it immediately just rang true with me from Vaclav Havel, that rare breed of being a, a poet and, and a, a, a playwright and a president. What a thought to have a literate president and a, 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 someone who's creative and, and thoughtful. And Vaclav Havel said, hope is not the conviction that something will turn out well but the certainty that some things are worth doing no matter how they turn out. Some things are worth doing. Do you understand that when we're always looking to see, is this going to turn out well? Are the odds in our favor? Are the stats in my favor? That when all you ever think about is what the odds are, then you're constantly adjusting yourself to just go along with what happens, with what's likely. But when you find that courage to say, there are some things worth doing, no matter how they turn out, this is who I want to be. This is who I'm called to be. This is what my life stands for. This matters to me more than life itself. That courage, that love, well, I have a feeling that's what Jesus meant when he said, you want a sign? I'm only going to give you one. It's the sign of Jonah. It's the sign that just as Jonah disappeared into the belly of a beast and everybody thought he was a goner, I'm going to walk into the belly of the beast and I'm going to disappear. And you're all going to assume that me and my cause is just another loser. But he says, that's the sign I'm going to give you. And uh, see what happens. Give us some sign, some magic trick in the sky so we can be certain of who you are and have no risk in following you, so that um, if you fail, we'll have no risk in rejecting you. And in so doing, avoid the responsibility of being human beings who have to take the risk of being alive and of deciding what things are worth doing no matter how they turn out. This brief encounter between Jesus and these rival political and religious parties who come together in a unified uh, test of him offers us, I think, a lot to think about in the future of faith. Don't think you can find a shortcut to security that avoids risk. To be alive is risk. There are wise risks. There are foolish risks. But rather than starting on what you wish were true, let's try to open our eyes to really care and really desire and to humbly seek wisdom and understanding and contact with as much reality as we can bear. Some things are worth doing no matter how they turn out. 
And the meaning in the story of each of our lives in many ways is determining what those things are that we think are worth doing no matter how they turn out. If there's a red sky at morning, you don't need other signs. You need to get your raincoat and your umbrella, and you need to prepare for reality. It's time for all of us to learn that inner practice, inner desire to meet reality, all the reality we can bear, that may not tell us the future of faith, but it will help us to face the future with faith. Amen. Dialogue is a podcast of Calvary's Lenten preaching series, a 100-year-old tradition that invites wise and inspiring speakers into our pulpit during the season of Lent. Dialogue is produced by Noah Glenn of Perpetual Motion. Our theme music was composed by Spence Bailey. Special thanks to Robin Banks, Director of Communications at Calvary, and Heidi Rupke, Lenten Preaching Series Coordinator. And thanks to you for listening. If you're curious about the home of dialogue in the Lenten preaching series, Calvary Episcopal Church is an eclectic bunch of Christian people. We don't all think the same thoughts or dress the same way or vote for the same candidates or even believe all the same things about the mystery of God and what it means to be human. But we do believe that we need each other because of our differences, not in spite of them, and that God calls us into a beloved community marked by unity, not uniformity. Subscribe to Dialogue at calvarymemphis.org podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. Visit Calvary in person at the corner of 2nd and Adams in the heart of downtown Memphis, Tennessee.